everyone, and welcome to the 123rd episode of The Goods, a film podcast with Dan and Brian. This is Dan, and I think Brian is somewhere out there. How you doing, Brian? Yep. Hi, everyone. Glad to be here again on The Goods. And we've had a slower recording couple of weeks just because I was traveling in Paris and then been really busy at work. And Brian, I take it you've been busy with some of your uh, graduate program. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I'm still working on animation and various stuff, but we're recording on schedule pretty much. You know, we've been at least since the France trip. So, you know, if you're if you're hearing this, you're we got it out to you. And um, so, uh, how are you doing, Brian? Is this spring treating you okay? Um, reasonably. Why? What do you got to say? That sounds like a springboard. <laughs> no, I, I've just I've been in a little bit in a, a rut in a in a funk the past couple of weeks. It's, yeah, it's been a confluence of things. What brings that on? I don't know. Uh, I think some of it is just allergies has been making me tired and like just physically feel less good. Because it is that time. It's There's like a chart that says the 12 seasons of Northern Virginia. Have you ever seen that chart, Brian? Is there like Fool's Fall or something? I think I have seen that. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, a couple things about that chart is pretty much every region has their variation of that where they, they act like, oh, our seasons are so crazy. I mean, not every single one, but anyone that is like actually has four seasons. So like California doesn't have that, but like uh, Midwest versions of that. But anyways, I've always seen it as a Northern Virginia one. Uh, what is where it, it, instead of the four seasons, it's got the 12 seasons. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to actually see if I can find it real quick. So uh, I'll probably post it in the Discord, too. By the way, if you're not on the Discord, come join us on thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. Uh, we have a Discord. We have a lot of good discussion there. And we post some of the content that we talk about in this pod there. But um, it's this... Uh, chart is Virginia actually has 12 seasons winter fool's spring second winter spring of deception third winter the pollenine actual spring summer hell's front porch false fall second summer and actual fall and I feel like we're right in the heart of the pollenine transitioning to actual spring although it's it's been we had some really hot days too, so I I don't really know. You know, this time of year it could be eighty five degrees one day and forty five degrees three hours later. So you know, yeah, it's been odd. We've once or twice gone like an eighty degree day to a day in the thirties, as you say. And, anyways, that and I've also just been swamped at work and doing a lot of summer planning for my daughters and just lost a little bit of motivation, falling a little behind on my writing and my podcast editing and my movie watching. So hoping to swing back into it over the next week or two, but we'll see. We'll keep a, we'll keep an eye on it. So yeah, but I guess uh, anything else you wanted to, to prelude us into before we talk about the, the matter at hand this week, Brian? Um, not too much. I don't know if I've mentioned that uh, this semester I've been taking a film history class taken many of those in my time uh, but this is the first one in a while and so I've been writing response papers and reviews and things and uh, your film assignment for this episode 
inspired me to do one of my longer papers on the topic. Nice. And I'd love to hear what some of your observations are. I did a quick read of that, which you sent to me, but um, definitely some good thoughts in there. Um, but yes, the selection today, as you probably know from the episode title, is a compare and contrast of the two movies, Babylon from 2022 and Singing in the Rain from 1952. 70 years apart, Brian. That's crazy, man. I'm glad I didn't write it in the paper anywhere because I was counting 60. And you're right, yeah. it is. It's 70. Wow. it's That's a really long time. I mean, I don't know. It It's like one of those things. It's like, how long ago was 2004? I mean, we're, we're of the, approximately the same age, Brian. I think it's like whenever you're in high school, any time after that feels like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously at this point, 2004 is almost 20 years ago. 1995, that's probably 15 years ago. No, that's almost 30 years ago. That's just the way that the perception of time goes. The 1952 being 70 years ago also just feels weird. Like saying that out loud feels weird. So I don't know. But when I say a compare and contrast, what I specifically mean is I'm framing this as what we call a violent ends, which is an episode format that dates back to, I think, our fourth episode ever. Brian came up with this this format, and I think it's a lot of fun as you take two movies with similar premises, but very different endings and just kind of look at how they're similar, how they're different. And usually, and I would say that is true in this case, one of them ends fairly darkly and one of them ends fairly happily for the main characters, uh, often with violence in the the dark one. And uh, as we'll see, that definitely comes into play to some extent here, but I think also, do we want to talk about this now, Brian, what we're going to do in, in future episodes, or, or should we save that as a reveal? Well, yeah, let's, let's do it now. So another thing that, that the reason this episode is special is because Brian and I have been brainstorming, and Brian had an idea. Brian, tell us, what, what what's this idea? What are we going to do with this episode? Right, so when we were wrapping up our most recent theme month with all the trains and railroads, some magic and some otherwise... We were left on a note of me not knowing what my next theme month was going to be. And then I've been watching movies for this class. And I was thinking a good one would be movies about making movies month. So that's going to be the next one. Probably we'll get it officially in the summer. But consider this like a backdoor pilot. Yeah, it's going to bring us into movies about movies month. We're going ma'am. It's a throwback to young adult month. It was going yam, Um, (laughs) which is, of course, a play on going ham, which I don't know if anyone actually says, but it's like a phrase that I know. Yes. But uh, one interjection is that uh, so one of the films that we watched in the class that I then wrote about was F for Fake, which, of course, we have covered on the podcast. And you just mentioned how time flies. I was thinking, oh, yeah, I just watched that movie. But then I went back to our backlog of episodes, and it's like episode 20-something, and now here we are on episode 120-something. So two full years ago, two Aprils. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I guess that was two April Fools' ago. So 
I, I suggested these, and, and if you've seen Babylon in particular, you know that this was not a particularly original insight of mine to compare them. I mean, beyond having basically the same premise, Babylon constantly calls out Singing in the Rain, which I kind of picked up on. I hadn't, it'd been like a decade since I'd seen Singing in the Rain, but there's a few references to it. They like do the, well, I'll talk about this. They do the Singing in the Rain song, but from its original context. And then the movie actually ends with one of the main characters watching Singing in the Rain in, in an emotional way that I think we'll talk about here in a bit. So, yeah, I, not exactly a clever, brilliant, incisive observation to say that these two have some connective tissue. Yeah, as I was watching, it got more and more explicit. And I was like, huh, this is a lot like Singing in the Rain. Oh, wait, this is directly from Singing in the Rain. OK, now they are literally sitting down and watching sitting, Singing in the Rain. <laughs> Not sitting in the rain. I heard it. I've heard it called. Uh, this is a phrase that I see every now and then that I kind of like. I've heard it called a crypto remake of Singing in the Rain, which is to say it's not explicitly a remake, but it is a remake in spirit. And I would say it, it basically is. I mean, it, it tells it, it tells the story. So I think they, in some ways, come to like polar opposite messages, which to me is the spirit of Violent Ends. It's a different flavor for sure. No elephant diarrhea in Singing in the Rain. <laughs> oh, I must have been watching a different cut than you, Brian. <laughs> that Gene Kelly's into some really weird stuff. But no, one thing that uh, is true of both movies, but, but uh, Babylon more so than Singing in the Rain, is that they draw in uh, a lot of references to things that happened in real life around the time that sound cinema emerged. And just to give people a timeline of this, uh, this is off the top of my head, so I'm sure that I'm going to make some mistake here. And Brian, if you know I make a mistake, call me out. But 1927, I think it was, the jazz singer debuted. Immediate sensation. As seen in both movies, studios basically had to halt what they were doing and completely shift their production strategy towards talkies, as they came to be called, synchronized sound. And the breakthrough on synchronized sound that I read this in a book recently, it's not really talked about in either movie, and, and Brian, you've probably read about this too, is that early attempts, basically they, they attempted to have the recording separate from the film. Right, they would like start a record at the same time as the projector. And the problem with this is that, like, all it takes is a is a single skip in the record, and it's distractingly off. And so you you end up really not actually having them synchronized that well, even if they're recorded in perfect synchronization. And you could also have machines that show the film in slightly different frame rates, etc. Um, the breakthrough is they started to actually store the sound on the film, and I don't know if that was part of the technology of. The jazz singer like right away or that's something that they they stumbled into over the next couple of years but i know that that ended up being the big breakthroughs both the the sound information and the visual information are, are physically located on the film itself so that was 1927 and then basically it took in the realm of like three to five years for the technology and production processes to really sort out their kinks to the point that we had like viable synchronized sound from start to finish pictures that weren't just like really stodgy 
uh, bound by the physical constraints of like having a microphone in a plant bush like we see in Singing in the Rain or like dangling right above the actors heads like we see in Babylon. And uh, the consensus first ever talkie masterpiece is the 1930 All Quiet on the Western Front. At least that's the one that I see cited most frequently. Although, interestingly, they also released a silent version of that film, which I've never seen, but I want to. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. But yeah, by, you know, 1931, you've got Dracula and Frankenstein. Um, Mm -hmm. If you watch The Jazz Singer... Like, the sound kind of kicks in at key moments, and then it'll go away again. So, definitely something that evolved over a couple years, but took hold pretty quickly. Yeah. And these two movies come at that evolution from very different angles. So, um, a couple other interesting things about these movies is there's parallels between the characters, but also they kind of have real-life parallels to some extent. They're not... It's not like one to one exact like biopic style, but it's they take elements of either this person's career or like the narrative around this person's career, even if that isn't like entirely the full picture and feed that into the film. Right. That's kind of how I want to talk into it, because both of them, both of these movies really center around the characters and the story itself is just the transition to talkie cinema. So. Um, One character that we see in both films is a silent era popular actor who kind of faces an uneasy transition. So this is someone who is kind of at their peak in the late silent era and then kind of flounders to some extent afterwards. And in Singing in the Rain, this would be Don Lockwood, the Gene Kelly character, although we see he ends up getting a happy ending where he successfully transitions by the end. And in Babylon, this is definitely Jack Conrad who's played by Brad Pitt. And the real world analogy to this is an actor named John Gilbert, who was a a popular silent actor and who basically never took to to talkies. Right. And so there's this World War I movie. I think it's called The Big Parade. I've watched that one and John Gilbert's the lead in that. Actually, we've talked about it previously when... I think it was in our Train to Busan episode. I said uh, something that always gets me is like when they start killing off supporting characters. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, I mentioned that uh, all along the way in that movie, John Gilbert has got these comic relief sidekick friends. And then in the final battle, the sidekick friends get killed. Oh, bummer. So I had seen him in a movie without even really realizing it, but definitely went down the rabbit hole reading about John Gilbert this time around. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, another character that appears in both is kind of the, the actress equivalent of this. Although in this case, the actress is kind of like a sensation, also like a sex icon. And in both, both singing in the rain and Babylon, this character, the reason for their transition, not working from silent to sound is that they have uh, a voice that is shrill and doesn't match their appearance. And so in Singing in the Rain, this is the antagonist of sorts, Lena Lamont, played by Gene Hagen. And in Babylon, this is Nellie Leroy, played by Margot Robbie. And the real-life comparison to this, again, it's never a one-to-one, but is, there was an actress named Clara Bow, B-O-W, 
who in particular matches Nellie Leroy quite a bit. And she was a popular actress who, who struggled to transition to, to talkies, um, but who was like always in seductive type uh, roles. She was the it girl. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, there were a few uh, actors and actresses who dropped off after the the turnover. Um, you could say Theta Barra. There's a yeah. couple. I saw my first Theta Barra film less than a year ago. She was like, it was a not a very good film. She was the only good thing about it, and she was terrific in it. And she was, I could see why she was a star. She like she had charisma uh, on screen. Another character who kind of appears in both is like a behind the scenes guy who has some connection to the the actor, but who, as compared to the actress and actor who kind of struggled, um, really like finds their footing in the uh, the rise of, of, of sound, synchronized sound. And in the case of Singing in the Rain, this is Cosmo, Cosmo Brown, played by Donald O'Connor. By the way, just a man. Donald O'Connor, so good in Singing in the Rain. He's really talented. It's. I was like, I can't believe that this guy is doing these things. I mean, even more than Gene Kelly. I was like, what? who is this guy? This is amazing. Yeah, flipping off the walls. It, two, two front flips in a single shot, Brian, in Make Him Laugh. And then he jumps, like, punches through a wall to bring it to a head. Yeah, really incredible stuff it's not quite as tight a comparison, but the analog in Babylon, I would say is, is Manny Torres. Who's another one of the main characters played by Diego, Diego Calva, I think is how you say it. And he's a, uh, he's a Mexican immigrant who kind of starts as like a hired hand, do the dirty work type guy. He's the guy who gets uh, shit on by an elephant in the opening scene. Actually, no, I think he's not the main one. I think he gets some of the blowback, but um, he's kind of there when there's the, the elephant poop and then he, he rises up as the movie goes along and ends up being a producer by, by the end of the movie. And I, I couldn't, didn't see any references to this being a, a single person that this was inspired by. I think it's just kind of a way for us to see different components of the, the film industry and the studio system. It's like seeing him at these different levels. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about Babylon. It's here at the start, we'll just say it's really bleak. Like it goes really dark places. <laughs> it's it's makes you feel different than Singing in the Rain does. That's for sure, yeah. And then there's the Debbie Reynolds character in Singing in the Rain who is the young emerging actress who gets her big break because she has a good voice. Which is kind of the the analog to the Lena Lamont character, the Nellie Leroy character, who can't make it in talkies because she doesn't have a good voice. And I don't think there was a Babylon equivalent, or if there was, they weren't really highlighted. But and I'm sure there were plenty of actors in the like the early talkie era who, because they could sing, had had more of a chance to break through. But I didn't see any specific one to one real life comparison for this. But. Babylon has a lot of side characters or secondary characters who are based on real people. You have a lesbian Asian seductive actress in, in played by Lee John Lee. And the character's name is Lady Faye Zhu, who is like very clearly a riff on the first popular Chinese actress, Anna Mae Wong. And she does the 
tuxedo act that Marlena Dietrich did in Morocco. And Marlena Dietrich and Anna Mae Wong were kind of in lesbians together. And <laughs> they co-starred in that movie that I would have picked for Train Month if it had stretched on a little while longer, which was uh, Shanghai Express. Got to check mm. that one out at some point. Yeah. But kind of a hybrid of those two figures in this character. You also have a, a jazz performer. It's a Damien Chazelle film, so you're going to have a jazz plot. Now, every single one of his movies, except the Neil Armstrong biopic, have jazz as a major aspect of the narrative. Played by, I don't know how you pronounce his name, J-O-V-A-N, Jovan, I would guess, um, Adipo. And this is actually based on Duke Ellington, who you know, went on to be one of the great influential jazz performers um, and band leaders, but also per- appeared in some shorts early in the, the talkie era. And so we follow him. I feel like he's a fairly expendable character. He doesn't, he's just kind of like counterweight to what we're seeing with the rest of the story. He's kind of a tool. He He shows that Manny is losing his principles. That he, I don't know how to quite structure this, but the arc I see, this is probably something I should throw in later, but Manny reminds me of Zed from the Zombies films. Oh, man. In that he's willing to sell out. He kind of wants to whitewash himself. He wants to be in with the humans. He wants to join the human world, and he's going to, like force all the zombies and then werewolves and and then whoever showed up in the third one aliens to comply and like hide their ethnicity hide their their monsterness um manny is is undergoing that in a more real sense he's like he he wants to be welcomed into the fold and he's bringing these other kind of outcasts with him uh and he's going to kind of dehumanize himself and them in the name of fitting in. And he's willing to do that, but the people he drags along are are less willing to do so. They feel more uncomfortable with that. Right. And there's a particular scene. I'm just going to say this now. I think Babylon in general, I got a lot of thoughts on it, but one specific complaint I have is that I think Damien Chazelle spent too much time reading reviews and blogs about his movie, uh, particularly like negative ones. Because first of all, this movie has a pretty complicated relationship with race. And I think it like uh, leans into being weird about race. And I think he's like basically trying to really point out how messed up it was being a minority, particularly in early Hollywood, which I think is a valid thing to tell for sure. But I kind of felt like it was really leaning into, into that aspect. Um, there's one particular scene that just feels like it's um, Damien Chazelle making fun of himself, or at least like the image of him. And I think this is probably one of the one scenes you're referring to where we have this jazz singer, Sidney Palmer appearing in a movie and basically with the lighting, he appears too light skinned relative to the other jazz performers who are all black. So this black man, black performer doing a black originated art in jazz has to put blackface on himself. So he appears more black 
in the movie. And it's like a very subversive, weird moment um, that I, I'm not quite sure Damien Chazelle lands. But yeah. And so Manny's like, OK, come on, Sydney, Chop, chop, black up. And he's like, uh, are you sure? He's like, yeah, it'll be fine. Just do it. This is important. Do it for me. McGarnagle. And he <laughs> he goes ahead and he slathers up. But then at the end of the day, he says, uh, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. No more movies for Sidney Palmer. Yeah. Another real life corollary we get in here is a reference to the Fatty Arbuckle scandal. So basically what happened is there was a big party with Fatty Arbuckle, who was one of the premier comedians of silent cinema and a young actress died under conditions that are still disputed and not quite fully understood, but it kind of got sensationalized into spinning it as Fatty Arbuckle as this big debaucher who was throwing wild orgies and like doing horrible sexual things to these young, easily exploitable actresses. And somebody finally died from it, which even though there's not 100% consensus on exactly what happened the night that this young actress, Virginia Rapp, died. It's R-A-P-P-E. I, I don't know if it's pronounced rap or rap it, it certainly wasn't like Arbuckle being outright evil is, is the consensus. Like he, he wasn't quite as manipulative and exploitative as the original depiction in the media was. And he ended up being tried multiple times for it and exonerated and like public apologies for being dragged through the mud on it. But as we see it in this movie, it basically boils down to like what the initial report was like a wild sex party that where this woman dies from Odin on cocaine. Uh-huh. Now I'll say everybody as much as this movie is tied to singing in the rain. It's as much, if not more tied to boogie nights, like beat after beat after beat. This movie is boogie nights. Absolutely. I was going to bring it up at some point. Just think about what you have with Boogie Nights. You have a three-hour movie about the transition from porno chic to home video porno. And that's it's exactly the same story here, except it's silent cinema to sound cinema. The older established mentor character is named Jack. He has a mustache. <laughs> yeah, you got a party where a young girl overdoses and they got to like sneak her out. Yeah, yeah. There's one really bizarre scene near the end where our main characters are in mortal danger due to a deal gone bad, let's say. Yeah, they're trying to cheat a a drug dealer. Exactly. Played by a guy that you've seen in another movie. In another Spider-Man movie. Oh, man. Alfred Molina is Doc Ock in Boogie Nights, and Tobey Maguire, who plays this just unhinged goblin of a... Is he the drug dealer? I guess he is. Yeah, but it's so weird. I wasn't even ready to get here yet, but yeah. Because to me, he's he's always going to be Tobey Maguire. So he's just like this weird man-child, but he's into like the most perverse scenarios imaginable. It's like yeah. if Steve from Blue's Clues invited you to watch him set somebody on fire or something. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't watch that, but... As much as I like Steve. But yeah, so let's kind of uh, dive into the movies themselves. We can pepper in our our thoughts. So 
we've kind of talked about what they both have in common and it's it's these basic beats we we start in the late 20s silent film industry full throttle we see that being a movie star in the silent movie era means not just performing in movies but being a socialite and uh someone whose life is lived in the public and you go to wild parties all the time and that's just your life it's it's glamorous and wild and uh you know what everybody dreams of of being when they grow up when they're a kid and maybe maybe a little bit more uh debauched than that yeah babylon is like if you took the pleasure island scene from pinocchio and stretched it out to three hours <laughs> like that whole arc pretty that much if, if you go to pleasure island you're gonna get turned into a donkey i was also really struck by um how much the opening party scenes in Babylon made me think of the party scenes in uh, The Great Gatsby by Baz Luhrmann. Which also has Tobey Maguire. Exactly. So, yeah, that has Tobey Maguire in it. And then also I watched Singing in the Rain twice and prep for this once just regularly and once with the commentary. And it's a really weird commentary track. They, they like splice together a bunch of different people talking about it. It's not like one continuous one, but one of the people who talks is Baz Luhrmann about his in, singing in the rain is an influence on him. Um, so yeah, weird Baz Luhrmann connections here too. Um, but yeah, this, this over the top party. And another thing we see in both of them, like mentioned is the introduction of sound really shakes everything up and everything has to change at once. And we see not everybody successfully make the transition. In, in for different reasons and in different ways. And then both of the movies end in a theater with some microcosm of the movie going world, embracing this change, this to, to what's happening. And we can talk about how different main characters kind of respond to that. I have a couple of thoughts on particular what Babylon's thesis statement is, but those are kind of like the, the main arcs of both films and where they differ is Singing in the Rain, if we follow the, the main characters we follow are Don Lockwood, the actor, Cosmo, who's played by Donald O'Connor, and he's kind of the um the behind the scenes guy. And then we have Debbie Reynolds with the character, the the new actress, Kathy Selden, and they're the heroes and they get the happy ending. Uh their picture is a big hit. They all become stars and have happy endings, whereas Babylon uh, there's first of all, there's a lot more stuff in there. Babylon's three hours singing in the rain is like an hour and 40 minutes. And Babylon just has scene after scene of just stuff happening. It ends sad for everyone, basically. Yeah, so. nobody has a good time. Like it leaves you with the message that you don't even want to be in L.A. Like stay away. <laughs> so I guess this is a good time to talk about it. But there's influence from singing in the rain in la la land too like Definitely. in that it's a, a 1950s technicolor musical it's about like people getting established in hollywood and climbing but like it leaves you in a very different place you know oh yeah uh, emma stone and ryan gosling they make it and like they have some reservations and they like pine for the lives that they ended up not living but like they're doing okay they're not dying in the gutter somewhere right yeah they're not in a smack house they're not in a shootout like this is painted as an aspiration that is you know if not admirable it's understandable whereas in babylon you want to go and you want to be a star 
you are going to get driven into the muck. You are going to get chewed up and spit out and just steer clear if you know what's good for you. Well, I think it's a little more complex than that in Babylon because I think Babylon directly ties that with the changes in the industry that are going on. Not to say that you wouldn't get chewed up in some ways because we see some people getting chewed up by it. But like, I'll just go out and say it now. I think what the thesis statement of Babylon is, is that movies done effed up by going from silence to sound. We, we lost a beautiful art and a beautiful time for the industry that was just kind of forced upon us and absolutely like ruptured so much terrific art that was going on and talent that, that couldn't adapt. Interesting. I didn't think about that, but you might be onto something. It's like classic jazz. Yeah, basically, except now it's silent cinema. And on the topic of, of Chazelle with uh, La La Land and Singing in the Rain, one thing I, I didn't say, but I did want to say, is I've actually been watching all of Damien Chazelle's movies recently. I did a uh, long review of La La Land that I recently posted. I'm going one of his movies at a time. And I made a big change, Brian, in our, our La La Land episode. I gave that an exceptionally good. And now that I've watched that, I think, three or four times, I I, I have taken the leap and given it my rare masterpiece toward a good five-star rating. I've really, really fallen for La La Land. Nice. That may or may not have happened by the time we did our 100 top films episode. I don't know. I feel like it was at least climbing by that point. Yeah, I think at that point I, I hadn't quite pulled the trigger. I had to watch it one more time to get there, but definitely there now. And I would have it even higher on my top 100 list because I've watched it twice since we, we did that. Once on New Year's Eve, it was the last movie I watched in 2022 as the year was winding down. And it's very, we talked about why it's a New Year's movie in our episode for that. And that was really nice. And then I watched it again to prep for the the review that I wrote and wish it was more original to love that movie. I mean, obviously many, many people do, but I, I really do like that movie. And um, I also watched Whiplash, which I feel like we should talk about sometime. Yeah, I checked that one out for the first time just recently, and it's definitely stuck with me. It's it's an interesting one, and I really liked that one. Uh, also, I wouldn't put it in masterpiece territory, but I also really liked that one. And then I I really liked his Neil Armstrong biopic. Like I would put that below La La Land and like maybe neck and neck with Whiplash. But that one surprised me by how much I liked it. It made me very emotional. Oh, wow. I got to check that one out. Although I got to say, I'm a little dubious hearing that there's no jazz in it. Like, I know. How yeah. can I even appreciate that? How, how is it even a Damien Giselle movie? Well, that's the one where he didn't write it. So that's why there's no jazz. But it does have the same themes that it has in all of his movies, which is basically... How can you be a creative person, an ambitious, professional, creative type? I mean, I guess being an astronaut isn't truly creative, but in the sense that you're taking some leap to some special, profound, professional place. And what is the cost of that on your personal life? And how do you lose something of yourself when you do that? And I think all of his movies, all five of them that I've seen, have that as kind of a core theme in some shape or form, basically. Yeah, we got to talk Whiplash at some point. Definitely a lot of talking points there. But I, I am interested in, in, it's called First Man, right? That's the Neil Armstrong yeah. film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got to see that one. And then, yeah, Babylon, is his, it's his fifth movie. His, his very first one was actually a student film called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, released in 2009. And it's 
a black and white mumblecore. Each of his five movies have looked totally different. You have the weird, like yellow stage lighting in chamber drama, soap opera type stuff with Whiplash. You obviously have the crazy Technicolor production in La La Land. You have First Man is shot in a mix of like handheld 16 millimeter and also IMAX stuff for the for like the launches and the moon stuff. And then Babylon is just kind of over the top everything. But he's become a director that I'm just really excited to see what what he's doing. And I, and I he lost there was a dead article in Deadline recently. I think it was 87 million dollars lost by Babylon. Um, it was a major, major flop. It only got one Oscar nomination and it didn't win it. And, you know, it got bad reviews, I think less than 50 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm excited to see where he goes next. I hope he doesn't end up in director jail for too long or whatever you call it when somebody loses the studio tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, he 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 did a Gilbert. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But we were talking through what these films have in common. Some different things. Singing in the Rain, like I said, follows the actor and his buddy. And um, it, it really kind of centers around this PR constructed romance and partnership with Lena Lamont played by Gene Hagen. And one thing I don't like about singing in the rain is I felt a lot of sympathy for Lena Lamont. I mean, she does some mean things and manipulative things and she's kind of portrayed villainously, but like, I don't know, like her voice is weird. Like that, that doesn't mean she's the bad guy just cause her voice is weird. Like she doesn't need to get tossed out of the industry. Right. Thrown in the dustbin of history. Or even if she is, like, feel sad about it. Like, this is a tragedy to me. This is not a, uh, oh, ha ha, or like, we won because we got rid of Lena Lamont, which is kind of portrayed as in the movie. Mm-hmm. So it's like not very humanist of the of the film. And it's it's a real scattershot film. It's it takes a long time to get going. And it's got all these like little songs. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of numbers, but these like little bits where the purpose is to just kind of have a song here and there right the presentation of the musical numbers is a little unusual because the diegesis kind of morphs as the movie goes like at the very start we're getting these flashbacks of don and cosmo and their story together getting established in the industry and like it's the there are songs but it's them doing vaudeville acts so like they're up on the stage and okay this is clearly happening in the world they are entertainers and this is them entertaining uh, but then later you get some more like drop of the hat style musical numbers where it seems like everybody is singing spur of the moment and you're maybe not meant to believe that this is happening within the diegesis. Things like Good Morning where they're like dancing through the house. Uh, but then later on, like it gets even more fantastical and you get some numbers where there are like dissolves and you know clear fantasy sequences and it's like this is happening on some other plane this isn't within the reality of the story right yeah that's another la la land thing by the way is playing with the diegesis a little bit and we've talked about that in the teen beach movies and high school musical but this movie really leans into like here's how movies are weird and artificial which also makes sense why baz Luhrmann was brought into the commentary track because that's Baz Luhrmann's entire deal, at least up until he made Australia, every one of his movies was about, wait, is this real? Is this artificial? Let's kind of rub our face in how weird and artificial it is, but also like 
have real human drama in there. And yeah, so that's kind of interesting. They, they also do stuff like messing with the form, like, oh, we're going to show the sound becoming out of coming out of sync. And it's going to be funny because it'll look like Lena Lamont saying I love you. But like the movie will actually do that. Like we're actually seeing it happen. And I thought that was kind of cool. I actually found that pretty interesting. The one that really stuck out to me is just kind of tacked on is what's well, the one I forget what it's called. The one where they're talking about, oh, we'll make it a musical and we'll have this number. Well, and we'll have this one modern number in there. And then they all kind of like put their hands on their chins and look to the corner of the screen. And then it cuts to this random number. Right. That's the one that's got all the dissolves and things. That's the it's actually like a couple songs all in one. But uh, I heard that called the Broadway Melody. That's right. Yeah, here it is. Broadway Melody. Yeah. But it's got gotta dance in in there as part of it. Is that ever done in The Simpsons? Gotta dance. I feel like there's definitely a musical number that they do that has a very similar da na na. I'll have yeah. to think about it for a second. The, I was surprised how much the songs from Singing in the Rain had like stuck to my brain from when I watched it over ten years ago. So I was like, "Oh, this is this the movie where that one song that occasionally played in my head was from the the gotta dance thing, the good morning, good morning, and the make them laugh too." And since since we are talking about the songs now, um, something that really surprised me the first time I read up on Singing in the Rain, which was in undergrad of college, is that it's actually a jukebox musical. These songs are pre-existing. They're, they don't originate here, at least for the most part. Yeah. My understanding is that every single song came from a previous movie or play with the exception of make them laugh. But even make them laugh, they just took the melody and changed the words for a song called Be a Clown, which was actually owned by a different studio and opened them up to lawsuits, but they never got sued for it. So Be a Clown, make them laugh. You can even hear the cadence of it. it sounds kind of similar. The one quote unquote original. Yeah is not even original. Yeah, and the rest, I think, every single one of them, if I'm not mistaken, is from something else. Yeah, and it's primarily films within the MGM library already, mm -hmm. uh, especially musicals that came out in the time period depicted. So this dawn of sound, like 1929 to 1933. Right, yeah. And in this undergraduate class that I took back in, like, 2010 talking about flying time uh but we watched hollywood review of 1929 broadway melody of 1936 and there were like three or four broadway melodies with different years uh, another one was gold diggers of 1933 uh, for whatever reason that professor was like really into early talking musicals but yeah yeah a little mind-blowing to see these numbers uh, that early where they started out i think the hollywood review of 1929 is the one that the title song singing in the rain comes from that we actually see in babylon them depicting the filming of that mm -hmm. and that was a case for me of uh, i think there's a moment like this in boogie nights where like they you know they get all these pieces together and they really glam it up 
oh, we're going to do this great thing. And then the camera rolls and it's like trash that they made <laughs> um, a little more high polish this original singing in the rain number but like if you watch this thing from 1929 it's just it feels very static and it you know it's a bunch of people standing on a stage and they're like bobbing their shoulders up and down going singing in the rain and it's a whole different experience the 1952 movie like yeah so much more choreography the camera is so much more dynamic um it also had me thinking this 1920s version of the scene in Amadeus, which is another movie that I love, uh, where there's a scene that they're like, Mozart is rehearsing with his his group, and there's some loopholes and, and intricacies of the story, but what's going on is that they're like performing, but Mozart's enemies have come to him with this law that says like you can't have music and dancing at the same time by decree of the emperor so they're going through their motions and there's no music and they're just like hopping around on the stage and the king comes in and he says he watches it for a little bit and he says do you like this he looks around at the people <laughs> he's like what what's happening right now do you like this <laughs> Yeah, and that's what I am thinking. Watching these supposedly great moments in silent film, it's right. like I feel like we can go somewhere from here. I don't feel like this is the apex of the art form. Well, hold on. Do you mean like the early talking musical stuff, or do you mean actual silent film? You said silent. I, film. I suppose I I mean yes, Dawn of the Talkie stuff. Yeah, yeah. So maybe 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 you're right. Maybe this is uh, the nadir brought on by the technical limitations. Like yeah. it took the great art form of silent film and knocked it back a few rungs on the evolutionary ladder. Right. You yeah, had you to take three steps backwards before you could start walking forward again. You could be right. Since we're talking about the numbers in Singing in the Rain, I mean, uh, here's another thing I'll say. I haven't seen that many... Uh, studio era musicals. It's like really a blind spot for me that I really want to patch because I think I would like it. I, I just think that's the kind of stuff that I enjoy now that I've been watching a whole lot more movies. I like it's I'm, I'm pretty weak on my coverage there and I kind of have a sticky note on this because for it feels kind of unfair almost like how much more revered singing in the rain is than any other Hollywood studio musical. It's like number 10 all time. And then there's no other movies or maybe one or two other movies in the entire top 250. Is it really that much better? Or is it just kind of like a, a moment in time? And this is like people celebrating the general form of the studio era musical by elevating this, which by the way, is a movie about movies, which people who like movies like movies about movies. So, you know, it's like almost masturbatory in the way that, that people are really into that. And I don't know. I feel like there is some of that. Yeah, I think you're right. It does kind of stand in as an embodiment of its form. But like, I mean, 1951, the previous year, Gene Kelly did American in Paris, which is another colorful musical. Mm -hmm. uh, 1953 is 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Mm. Why, Dan, is that not the canonical Technicolor 1950s musical? We failed as a society. <laughs> um, but yeah, the numbers, I mean... I was blown away by the numbers. We've watched a lot of musicals, uh, mostly cheap musicals here. I mean, we watched, we did, did watch and talk about La La Land, but we've done like, I don't know how many Disney Channel musicals, at least six. 
No, at least eight, because we also did the Teen Beaches. We did three High School Musicals, we did three Zombies, and then we did two Teen Beaches. And I think those are impressive, and I, I like them. But watching this, you really kind of see the gulf in just capability of the performers. And the way that I found that really standing out is the length of the takes. You just follow someone for like a minute, and they're nailing every single move. It's so impressive and so cool to watch. Gene Kelly is celebrated as one of the greatest dancers of all time, and you definitely see it here. He just goes yeah. and goes and goes and, yeah, always nailing it. Yeah. I mean, all, all of them are really good. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Even Gene Hagen, the, Lena Lamont, she, I was impressed by her, too. Like, I know I've already kind of said I feel like they the movie did Lena Lamont dirty, but, like, Gene Hagen is really funny and like nails a minute long take of being annoying and of, and like singing poorly, you know, without ever breaking and without everyone around her breaking and just gets it in such a funny way. Right. It's so good. Yeah. That whole grand reveal at the end where the ruse is exposed, that's all one shot too. You know, it's, it's not, a, it's not a dance, but it's the same thing. Really long take. And actually, Gene Hagen was the only one to get an Oscar nomination from this movie. Whoa, really? And she didn't win. Yeah, the only Oscar nomination, Best Supporting Actress, for Gene Hagen. So I do know that part of the story of Singing in the Rain is that I, I didn't read too much about it. I think Roger Ebert might talk about it in his review of it when he inducted it into his great films canon. But I think... It was like not really appreciated in its time. It was just like kind of another hit. And then it kind of gra gradually became recognized as a real classic as time passed, which would kind of jibe with one Oscar nomination or whatever, you know, like people didn't say it was bad at the time, but like it wasn't a sensation. Right. And I mean, that happens, you know, there's there's a few cases in cinema history like that. Right, for sure where it kind of gets established over time as a movie that everybody knows. To close the loop on the story of Singing in the Rain, by the time it does finally get going, the, the scheme here is that basically Debbie Reynolds' character, by the way, Debbie Reynolds, 19 when this movie was made, adds a weird undercurrent to it because Gene Kelly was not 19 when this movie was made. Yeah, he was like 40. And he's got this like Creed from the Office printer ink black hair dye in his hair. Yeah, he's just like maybe 5%, maybe 15% skeevy in this this movie. I, I didn't... Do you think we're supposed to like him? I mean, we are supposed to like him, but let me put it this way. Did you like him and his character? I found him just a tad off-putting. Like, why am I rooting for him? He doesn't bring anything that I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy rules. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't feel super strongly attached to him one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, like, he's pretty clear from the start that he doesn't want to be with Lena and she's not accepting that. Yeah. So he wants to be out of that relationship and into the other one. And that at least I can follow. That's true. You know, it's right. It's, it's a narrative and it, it flows, but I, I don't hate him. I don't love him. He's fine. And he dances really, really well. Yeah. Um, but the scheme is that, that, Selden, Debbie Reynolds, is going to provide the voices for um, Lena Lamont. And Lamont tries to turn this into like a permanent deal by like manipulating the studio and, and the contracts and stuff. 
And then it ends with basically a public humiliation of Lamont as not being able to sing with Reynolds covering for her, Selden covering for her, and she gets booed out of the building and presumably all the bad stuff disappears when she gets booed out of the building. So happy ending for Lockwood, who's Gene Kelly, and um, Cosmo, who's O'Connor, and of course Selden, who's Debbie Reynolds. And sad ending for Lena Lamont. So more happy endings than sad endings there, which we will see as a contrast to Babylon for sure, which opens with, to me, one thing about Babylon that's maybe an issue is that it's like something like, I don't know, eight to 10 just incredible scenes tied together with a lot of stuff that happens. And like the first incredible scene is this showstopper party just shot with this flying camera through this dance hall with elephants stomping through. But even before then we see it opens. This is another thing where I was like, Damien Chazelle is just poking fun at himself. It opens with an elephant pooping on the first character that we see because they need to get an elephant up the hill and it'll be lighter if you make it poop. So they shove stuff in the elephant's butt and poop comes spraying out everywhere. It's like, Oh, you think I'm just a romantic Hollywood sap? No, here's me showing elephant poop going everywhere. But then that also kind of sets the tone for a, a movie that shows quite literally blood, sweat, tears, venom, shit, whatever other bodily fluids you want to throw in there being poured into this art form in this culture. Yeah, this party at the start is half an hour long, and I was really thinking it was going to be the whole movie. I I was just overwhelmed. Um, this is a, a little of a weird anecdote, but I feel like it fits the subject matter is that... <laughs> Uh, one time in college, I was hanging out with my sweet mate. So not my roommate, but like the guy that I shared a bathroom with. And I was sitting in his room and he he had on a, on his computer this uh, this pornography scene. And it was just this crazy group sex scene. And he said, no, 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 this is too busy. I can't enjoy this. And that was my thought of this party scene in uh, Boogie, not Boogie Nights, um... Babylon. It even starts with a B. Basically Boogie Nights, yeah. Yeah, Babylon, colon, basically Boogie Nights. Uh, (laughs) But I was thinking, no, no, no. This is too busy. I can't enjoy this. Because just, it's, every scene is overflowing. There's thousands of people in this big house. Uh, At any given time, there's like three topless people, topless women on on screen. Um, You know, Fatty Arbuckle is dealing with this overdose, and there's the jazz band introduced. It's just crazy. Uh, there's like giant paper mache heads bouncing around. Right. And, and Margot Robbie is doing her unhinged thing where she's like being a, a wild sex kitten dancing around, doing whatever, stealing the show. Um, I, I actually don't like her very much in general. I feel like she really did embody the character, but I always tend to think that, I don't know, I just tend to not like her characters. Maybe that's like by design, the way that she gets cast or something. It's like they're playing on some aspect of her, but I just rarely find myself rooting for Margot Robbie and her characters. And I would say that's the case here, but she really does embody this like wild child uh, incendiary character. And then uh, the next kind of big scene is this uh, montage of a day filming silence and is really going to be a big contrast. Like this is just like a almost ironically much noisier, more fluid 
uh, happening thing. And then when you introduce sound, everything has to be quiet and still very much the juxtaposition. But first we see the silent era filming stuff. And this might've been my favorite scene in the movie. It's, it's very interesting because we see uh, Manny trying to get his in and he has to go and rescue this camera from this camera shop. And there's lots of funny shenanigans there, but we see like what appears to be almost a stand in for intolerance or like one of these massive epics of the silent era where you have cast of thousands doing a battle scene and it ends with a big epic kiss with uh, Jack Conrad, the, the Brad Pitt character in like this very romantic shot that it, because it's shot as like this montage, it's also the same time that Margot Robbie's character is really having her breakout performance and like winning the heart of the people filming that. And just a really cool scene where everything's coming together. And yeah, also like a half hour long, basically. Yeah. This was probably my favorite scene. Lots of great stuff here. Um, also, when I first picked up that they were straight up borrowing scenes from Singing in the Rain, because uh, the first time we see them making movies in Singing in the Rain, they play with the fact that when it's silent and you don't have to worry about sound, you can be making four movies at once, all yeah. right next to each other. And in fact, right. some of these films are like identical between Singing in the Rain and... Babylon like mm. the very first one that we see is like this outrageously racist like Africa depiction right like Uga oh Uga I didn't even think bones of in yeah. the nose like they got the same <laughs> costumes right um <clears throat> also in uh Babylon we have Samara weaving and Margot Robbie on screen at the same time and they make some comic hay out of the fact that they look exactly alike, which right. is something that I had heard, but I had never seen them in the same room together before. And it is pretty striking. <laughs> right. Definitely. And then we see the jazz singer come out and things start to switch. And we see the the scene that I've seen get the most critical praise um, and I also think is right up there with the best of them. And that's when we see Nellie Leroy, the uh, the Margot Robbie character, filming her first talkie or maybe not her first talkie, but an early talkie. It's this movie called Hello College, or maybe that's just her line is Hello College. And it's just an utter contrast to the mayhem of the silent filming where you she has to be. Everyone has to be completely quiet. They have to nail it. She has to hit her mark exactly. So she's right underneath the microphone. She can't talk too loud or too soft. And if anybody it has metal, it'll like mess with the microphone. If anybody makes any noises, they have to do the take. It, we see them do like eight takes and the director is like losing his mind and shouting profanities. And the punchline of it is this whole time we've seen the guy inside the booth uh, recording the sound saying, guys, it's really hot in here. I don't feel safe. And they're like, shut up and get in there. And they nail the take and then they open the door and that guy has died from <laughs> overheating. It's like a cynical punchline that to me is like a good parallel to what's overall happening in Babylon. And it's like every scene has some kind of cynical punchline because even on like the great day, the peak of silent filmmaking, during this big battle scene, they're like killing extras. They're running them through with lances and they're like, oh, that's just collateral damage. These were bums we got off the street anyway. Yeah. This is a dark movie. And w when the cameraman died, I do think it's interesting that because the camera itself is very noisy. So it has to be to get the sound. It's got to be like in a soundproof box so that it's not hearing itself. Right. Yeah. We see... 
that Brad Pitt is like a alcoholic who can barely function until he's on screen and then the magic turns on. Actually, a contrast to Boogie Nights, you pointed out to this to me in chat. It's like a flip almost like we see this these people who are like really talk in Boogie Nights. We see these people who are like talking it up, going to be great art. And then clearly Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't actually think porno chic is all that great of an art. It's like what we see is really flat and and pathetic. Here, it's the opposite. We have these losers. And then the instant that they're on, they're making like really beautiful stuff that like actually looks like something you would want to watch in a theater, you know? Right. So then we kind of get this sort of gradual transition to the the climax. Like I said, just a lot of stuff happening in between. We we see Conrad, who's the, the Brad Pitt character, having flop after flop and like always saying, oh, I'm still a big star. Oh, the next one's just around the corner. Also going through wife after wife after wife. He gets a lot of beautiful women, I got to say, in, the, in this movie. Yeah, I mean, he is Brad Pitt. But yeah. that said, Brad Pitt is 59 years old, Dan. That wow. blew my mind. I can't even process that. And I like to think that that's another play on uh, Singing in the Rain, just kind of making fun of how Gene Kelly's the old guy, but he's always getting the ladies, you know? Yeah, we have... We have the the side plot with the the jazz musician getting his rise, uh, Manny climbing up the ranks as he manages to be a hired hand who just gets the job done, eventually becomes a producer himself. Where the movie really turns is um, this scene where Nellie finds herself in deep gambling debt and comes to Manny and is like, they're going to kill me, they're going to mutilate me, you got to save me. And Manny basically making a decision that he could either throw her out or he could save her. And we've kind of seen them tied all this time, their fates together. Like the first party, that was when she decided, she announced she's going to be a star. In fact, she already is a star and she just needed to get her break. And then she did get her break and we, we see her rise and then fall. And here he's just, Manny was the opposite. He started small and he kind of had to go up and he's at his peak just as she's at her nadir. But he decides to throw himself in with her because he like fell in love with her and they're like, they're, that's their connection and stuff. So yeah, he, this is where we get the scene with Toby Maguire. He, he basically asks, uh, Hey, someone who's on studio, Hey, I need money. Can you help me get some money? And the guy's like, all right, I'll get it for you. And he gives him a briefcase full of money. It turns out to be prop money. And we have, uh, Toby Maguire is this crazy gangster. They, the party he brings him to, I think is intentionally like a mirror of the opening party in the sense that like, we're kind of now seeing it for as like messed up as it actually was. And it's just so much darker when it's literally underground. A absolutely. You know, I've, I've been trying to think what it made me think of. And I think I finally just had it click for me is, do you remember in Bedazzled, the 1967 one, where uh. when the devil brings the guy who's selling his soul to like the nightclub party at the start, and it's like all cool and hip. And then at the end, they come back to the nightclub again. And like everybody who is partying there is still partying, but they're all like decrepit now. And like all their makeup is running and it's it's like really gross. That's an incredible connection. I think you're right. And it's not even the biggest bedazzled connection that that we have with this episode. Do you know what the other one is? Stanley Donan directed yeah. Singing in the Rain. And bedazzled. Yeah, yep. obviously, uh, I would say Singing in the Rain is better known. Mm -hmm. uh, I also learned in the commentary, it's pronounced Stanley Donnan, not Stanley Donan. Oh. So I've been saying that wrong for years now. Well, I'm sure we've mispronounced many things over the years. Uh, yeah, this 
party. So first off, this whole scene is like beat for beat what's going on at this same point in Boogie Nights. Yeah. Because have... they, they're going to defraud a a uh, drug dealer. In in that case, they're selling fake drugs to him because Reed Rothschild has got like, what, like baby powder in a bag or something, baking soda. Yeah. But here they're uh, they're trying to repay their debts. Right. And it even does the same thing where there's like a really jarring sound that constantly throws the main character off. And in Boogie Nights, it's firecrackers that this guy's throwing. And in uh, Babylon, it's this guy hocking a loogie. <laughs> the production design of this this place that Tobey Maguire is like the head honcho at is wild. It's like a haunted house that you would go to at Halloween. Like he's leading you through the various tableaus and you just barely see things in like the swinging lantern light, but it's suggestions of the most terrible things you can imagine. Oh yeah. Like dwarf, I don't know. Just yeah. like people missing limbs and horrible things rats live and sex shows and stuff yeah and they just descend further into the depths of hell and it's all in red it's pretty wild and then yeah so this backfires and uh manny has to run away he impales a guy with a mace and he's got to run away and there's an alligator on the loose for some reason yeah and um he basically decides he's going to run south to Mexico with Nellie and she eventually buys in and they briefly decide they're going to get married. And like he's on the verge of running off when Margot Robbie just kind of dances into the distance in the dark. It's like a metaphor for burning out into the, the ether, um, which is kind of the essence of her character. And man, you kind of had something good going. You didn't need to throw away there, Manny. You could have had more of a career there. Although at this point, we're feeling at least a little bit cynical of you because you've kind of had to compromise yourself to stay with the industry. You know, you had to lay off the, what was the name of the the Asian actress? You had to make the jazz players debase themselves with their blackface and be kind of cruel to various people. But you still have what's pretty much a good gig. You're like a high up producer, but then you just kind of have to run off for this, this horrible scheme. Yeah, for somebody as flighty and frankly unprincipled as margot robbie seriously like she needs to keep a little tighter ship i think yeah but even when she kind of disappears he still runs south and then we get we start to jump into the future oh i forgot another big one we see a party where jack conrad brad pitt after yet another failed marriage yet another failed picture walks into a room and shoots himself which is of course exactly the thing that happens in Boogie Nights, too. And it actually, yeah, it, well, it's kind of a repeated beat here because he's got a friend who, like, came up with him making movies together, uh, Jack Conrad does, and this friend keeps striking out with women the whole movie. And he's even more like William Macy, and then he kills himself, and that's part of what prompts Conrad to kill himself. And then we get the weird ending of this movie. It, it, we get a, our first montage into the future. It jumps ahead to 1952, but we see all these things happening. The fates of various characters, mostly obituaries for them. We see that the Nellie Leroy character died when she was 34, just a few years later. A couple other people we'd seen uh, died. There's like this reporter that we follow. 
the movies obviously change and, you know, they persist even as it chews up and spits out the people. The movies just keep going and going. And then uh, 1952, which is, of course, the year of Singing in the Rain, Manny comes back to Hollywood. He seems to have found a much more sensible woman, Mexican woman. They have a kid. They go like, oh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I kind of used to work here. And and it's just almost like a distant memory. It's like a very weird thing. And then he goes and he sits in a movie theater and it's singing in the rain. And I really love this thing. It's clearly also like Chazelle grappling, grappling with his complex feelings towards singing in the rain and all it represents. And everybody's laughing along, but we we keep the camera on Diego Calva, who, by the way, I think is really good. He does one thing over and over again, which is like he's so good at like gawking at what's happening in front of him. He's always a viewer to the world in front of him. Just nonstop reaction shots of him like soaking it in as if it's a movie itself. And then we actually see him actually watch a movie and he's more visibly moved by that than he was everything that was happening in reality. But he starts weeping when everybody else around him is laughing. And I just thought this was like a very interesting and almost touching thing that kind of captures that. Yeah. Uh, singing in the rain made it all seem happy and good and it worked out well, but like there was a lot of people and a lot of artistry and a lot of great things lost when we had to do this, this transition, which I think aligns with what I said. The thesis statement is that we lost a lot and this transition to sound. Mm-hmm. So he like breaks down sobbing. He has this cathartic moment and then it almost turns into like 2001, a space odyssey. Like he kind of goes rapidly through the last couple stages of grief for what, what has gone before. Uh, it reaches something like acceptance at the end. And then there's like a rapid fire montage through the remainder of cinema history up until the present day. And he's like blasting through it. Right. It's like searing his eyeballs. Yeah. And I've seen some argument about are this specific films and shots selected meant to convey something. One theory that I saw is it shows moving becoming movies becoming more and more artificial and like faker and faker. Yeah, it ends with Avatar, which I was not expecting to see Avatar after some of the things that we saw in this movie. I know that was. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been real funny if it had shown La La Land. I think that might have been even a little too cute for Damien Chazelle, <laughs> who likes his cute things. Yeah, and then it ends with him giving this kind of mixed look, happy and sad. So maybe kind of coming to some acceptance, like you said, but that's how how Babylon ends. A really long and busy film. So yeah, two movies, Brian. Let's talk some some good things or some not so good things or some connections we might have missed. Any thoughts you want to open with here? Well, just one other thing that came up when I was writing my paper is I was thinking about the great movie ride at Disney MGM Studios, which isn't even called that anymore. It's Disney Hollywood Studios. And like none of the uh, original debut attractions of that park even exist anymore. But like the central thing that they built the park around was this extended dark ride through movie history called the Great Movie Ride. And they like established a partnership with MGM just so that they could draw on um, properties like singing in the rain and so there's a big you know wizard of oz tableau in there and a singing in the rain tableau for which they have a gene kelly robot like dangling from a lamppost 
Oh, and man. What I learned was that Gene Kelly was still alive in 1989 to, like, sign off on his robot doppelganger. Say, yep, that looks enough like me. <laughs> um, but they closed that ride in 2017, Dan. It's, like, part of Star Wars land now. That's depressing. That's a bummer. And so, like... Not only is Gene Kelly not around anymore, but neither is his Gene Kelly robot. It's like, even you can't rely on your mechanical doppelgangers to live forever. <laughs> Everybody is going to get swept away like Lena Lamont or 60-year-old Brad Pitt. Right, yeah. A couple other uh, connections I saw. One is they they have the same riff on the lead saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And the audience replying to that. I almost had deja vu. I was like, is that actually in both? And it is in both. I, I had to go back and confirm because it's it's basically the same beat played both in both of them. Why does why do the actors even think that's a good plan? It's like I don't know. Like Gene Kelly's like, Can I just do what I always do? Say, I love you, I love you, I love you, and then that doesn't go over. It's like, why did you think that it would? Well, I think part of the idea is that in a silent... I mean, in that case, it's set up okay, yeah, because normally right. it doesn't matter what they say. So there you get it, but less so in Babylon. Right. And I just wanted to point out again, Singing in the Rain, not only is it a happy ending for the characters, but it romanticizes the transition to sound as like a glorious thing. And I feel like Babylon, sad ending for everyone, it makes us feel like we lost something great. So like both characters and thematic mirrors of each other but i think i've hit most of my points brian is there anything else you wanted to to bring up or do we just want to go into is it good yeah i think i'm ready all right so is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good which is an eight out of eight so brian you can go first we'll do uh singing in the rain first uh you can give your rating i'll give mine is Singing in the Rain from 1952, directed by Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly, starring Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, Donald O'Connor, Gene Hagen. Good. Okay, so Singing in the Rain. This is one I've seen several times before. I think when you get into classic films, this is probably one of the very first ones you're ever shown, uh, often probably as a kid, because it's in color on like a lot of very old films, and has relatively family-friendly subject matter. Uh, but this watch-through, I, I appreciated it more than other times I've watched it. I think this is really well done. Just really struck and impressed by all these long-take dance numbers. So it just edges, I think, into 7 out of 8 territory for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it an, an exceptionally good... Although if if I were on another day to say it's it's very good, six out of eight, I think I, I sometimes might feel that too, but I feel charitable today. Number seven. I'm I'm there with you, Brian. Um I'm really bowled over by the production of it and just the color and the energy and the bravura of the performances, the long takes, um Cosmo rules. He's my favorite. I'm going to give this an exceptionally good, but like I said, a little bit of a sticky note to revisit once I've seen more musicals and have a little more context for this, particularly studio era, studio era musicals, um, to see how I feel. Maybe I'll kind of appreciate its strengths even more. Maybe I'll feel like, actually, it's 
more par for the course. I don't know where I will go with that, but I'm going to say exceptionally good. I, I think it's a terrifically fun watch, even if it's like feels a little bit patchwork and thrown together in some ways. And I, I think it, it did Lena Lamont dirty. It's just such a delight to watch and exceptionally good. Yeah, uh, no, no reservations about that for me. So moving on to Babylon from 2022. Darker movie, similar story, directed by Damien Chazelle. Brian, is Babylon good? This is a tough one. I'm going to give it a five out of eight, maybe on the higher end of five, because, I mean, the production value is really high. Uh, There's a lot of movie here. It's really long. It's pretty gross, but, like, that kind of serves its purpose in that it's trying to paint this dark picture. And it leaves me feeling pretty bitter uh totally different from singing in the rain uh and yet to have that same story at its core is really interesting uh, maybe it'll grow on me i think it'll be a while before i watch it again uh, but that's what i'm feeling right now what about you dan so for me this one's a roller coaster but i love it i picked it as my number nine movie of 2022 and I might bump that up just a little now. That said, I do have a lot of ambivalence about it because I I think it's got some just absolutely tremendous scenes, moments, production, themes, really gives you a lot to chew on. Just really loves movies. That's one thing I enjoy about Damien Chazelle movies. He just loves movies. He loves musicals. He loves cinema. And it's infectious. And that is here too. But man, I think he like went too far in on being impish and naughty for the sake of naughty and just even stuff where he's kind of making fun of himself and like stereotypes about the types of movies he makes, like overdoing it, like aggressive vomit scenes, like, Oh, I can do weird, funky stuff too, gross stuff too. Kind of felt like he was doing a little bit too much of that for me. Maybe I'm just projecting a little bit and that's not actually what was going on in his head, but It really felt like it, especially watching it shortly after La La Land when it's just tonally such a polar opposite. And I do appreciate that he's versatile and he really makes some really tremendous stuff. And I do love that it it really appreciates silent film, which is something I've been coming around on more recently, that it kind of makes you respect it. And it shows it as like a a lost fluid art, just some really cool stuff going on with it. I'm going to give it a very good. I'm going to give it on a higher end. Very good with the possibility that it'll grow on me. I just don't enjoy gross out humor and naughty for the sake of naughty and all that, that I feel like this is too much of. So I don't ever seen this one going into the masterpiece realm like La La Land did, but uh, I still think it's a special film and one of the most special of last year for sure. Yeah. I'm really surprised it's got such a low critical rating on like Rotten Tomatoes and stuff. I, I mean, really? I, I thought it was pretty good. I, my my overall impression is positive, and if that's how they weigh Rotten Tomatoes, like positive versus negative, I would think it would be a little bit higher than it's at. Exactly, yeah. Um, I wonder how I would feel about it if I had never seen Boogie Nights before. Mm. Like, just so much of it seems copped from Boogie Nights. It really does, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Well, that wraps another episode of The Goods. Thank you, Brian, for joining us. And next week, if we can work out the logistics, I always say that just in case we don't, uh, we're going to have my brother back, my brother Will. We're going to be talking about, I think, some Japanese animation. Brian, I'll get you the details on that. I don't know specifically what it is off the top of my head. Oh, cool. He did write it down for me, and I will send it to you. 
and that will be fun to talk about. And somewhere down the way in the not too distant future, expect us to <laughs> go ma'am. <laughs> well, we'll we'll talk movies about making movies. Yeah, in yeah. not too far away. This is like um, what Amazon used to do with their pilots when they had shows. So they would make a pilot, and then you'd wait a while, and then you'd get the rest of it. Anyways, thanks, Brian. As always, it's been a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for joining us. See you next time on The Goods. Thanks, everybody. Bye.